like to welcome you to Genesis Community Church. My name's Hans. I get to serve as one of the pastors here, and we are in the midst of a series. We just started it last week, calling it Community Matters, as in issues that belong to, like, that belong to how we live life together. So what, what happens when we as a church family try to set out, right? We have this whole aspiration of what church life could really be, um, and it always seems to not be that. I would just assume, like, you don't have to be involved in a church for more than, like, 15 minutes before you find yourself disappointed in something, right? Like, you just go, well, I wish this were like this, or I don't like the way this worked, or I don't like the way that happened, or I don't like the preaching here, or that song's not my favorite, or I don't know why they do this, or their website's okay, but there's an event on it from 1943 that they haven't removed yet, and, like, that's not cool. It's like, so all these things that kind of get into our head about church life, and what it means, and, and how things don't work right. And I just tell you, like, the whole series is about, like, why that is, what God has done, so that we can actually walk differently than our expectation, and what he's still doing. And so if you're not in a community group, I would certainly encourage you at this point in time kind of to consider one as we're discussing these passages and ideas together, and just go join up with people and, and have these conversations because they're hard for us. You know, an old mentor of mine uh, would talk about something called re-entry. Now, you might not know the phrasing, but re-entry is essentially this. Like, imagine you've been away from uh, your spouse or a friend or whatever else, somebody you're very close to, and you've been away for a week or two or three or longer, and, and you get back together, and one of you or both of you have all these expectations on how that time's going to go. You think it's going to go very well, and you go, I can't wait, it's been, I've, been, I've been here with the kids for you know, 14 days straight, I can't wait to, to see my husband or see my wife, or I can't wait to get home, like, I have so much I want to talk about, and then you get home, and it doesn't quite go as planned Right, your uh, spouse goes, take the kids, I'm out. <clears throat> I'll see you later. And you're like, okay, cool, right? It's like been one hour, two hour, three hour, four hour. You're like, oh, are you coming back anytime soon? Like, is this, you know, I'd love to chat with you. And you're like, you know, you're being ghosted by your own, by your own wife. Um, <laughs> amen, did I hear an amen already? Yeah, yeah, the flax know what this is like. That's right. Yeah, this is on you. Uh, so... You go, well, that didn't work. And all the enthusiasm you had about whatever it was going to be with your friendship, with your spouse, with your family, like it just doesn't go according to plan. All these kind of worked up expectations, and it doesn't go according to plan. Now, we've all had experiences where our expectation hasn't been met on how some type of relational interaction is going to go. We've all had it. Uh, we've all tried to meet up with a friend from church family, for example, uh, to only find that meeting underwhelming. And just go, well, that was, I mean, that was fine, right? Like, you know, you schedule a meeting with me, and for whatever reason, you're excited to meet with me. I think you're crazy, but you know, you're excited to meet with me. And then, you know, you get done, you're like, I mean, that was fine. Hans is an okay guy, but that didn't really, I was expecting something else, right? <laughs> like, well, I don't sell a bill of goods that, you know, like, I'm a real big under-deliverer, so if you ever spend time with me, you'll find that very quickly, that this didn't go as planned. Uh, we've had the date night that has gone toxic, right? It's like, oh, we haven't, see, we haven't had a conversation in four years together. I can't wait to spend two hours over dinner yelling at each other about all the ways our spouses failed us over the past four years. 
We've gone to our child's recital and been so glad to see them, only to somehow have it end with us yelling at them. Like, get in the car, do this, I can't believe it. All these things start coming out of us. We're like, what? What is happening? We're kind of like Pam Beasley, who no one from the office comes to her art project, art show. We're not really sure why that is, but we're saddened by it, right? No one shows up. We think, hey, I thought we were friends. <laughs> I thought we were close. I thought this was, I thought, I thought, yeah. Unmet expectations, discouragement from human relationships. Why is it that living life in community, living in relationship with one another, even as a people who are saved by grace, like why is it that it's so difficult? Why, despite our best efforts, do we sometimes find things devolving into a mess of blame and anger? Well, look no further than the human condition. Just like, we're just going to go right there today. Genesis chapter 3. You've heard Zach read it. So, you know, I call this passage the fall of man. Um, sometimes maybe you've heard this phrase, you know, somebody's trying to be super, uh, super smart around you, and they say, oh, yeah, well, ever since the fall, and you're like, well, is it like the season, um, or are we talking about something else? So when we talk about the fall of man, we mean the, the height from which they dropped from their original kind of created state. That's what we mean, and that shows up for us in Genesis chapter 3. So where are we last week, but in Genesis 1 and 2, to see what God has created, which is man and woman cooperatively going and bringing God's image to the end of the earth. That's the plan. It takes God to actually right that wrong that we created, but this week we're talking about the wrong. The next two weeks after this, we talk about the work of Jesus, specifically as it relates to us, specifically as it relates to the group of people who fall under his grace. So we'll see in this a few things. We'll see the temptation. We'll see then God's kind of exposure and, and, and the bringing out, the drawing out of the confession, which is a rather weak confession from Adam. And we'll say, I'll say Eve a lot, even though she doesn't get her name until the end of the passage, but I'll say Eve a lot because I'm being a little anachronistic in the passage. So how did it all begin, right? We see the temptation, God's bringing out of the confession, God's consequences, I might use the word curse, and I don't mean that in the sense of hex or like, you know, somebody's like, well, you're cursed forever. Uh, but I mean like just the state of things, the state of things not working the way that we think they should. And then we'll just look finally at uh, a reminder that exists in all of this for us. So while much of our answer to the question, why is this so hard, is going to have to do with what's spoken of, kind of the meat of the passage, those speaking to the serpent, the woman, to Adam. We start right at the beginning because we have the serpent, which I think would be a personification of Satan, right? Like, like, like that's what I, I would link those two together. So Satan in the garden. Um, we have this serpent, and it's, the serpent is crafty and uses this language. Did, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Did God actually say that? Now you see the response from the twisting of God's word. Just a little bit of questioning, is that actually what was stated? 
Did he really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Which already was the case. God didn't say that. He gave one tree. Don't eat from this tree. The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, which is an addition, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what's the temptation here? Think about it. The temptation is not really just to eat some fruit. More of us should be tempted to eat more fruit, quite honestly. Fruit would be good for us in our diets. The temptation is clearly more significant, and it starts with basically this idea. God can't be trusted. God can't be trusted. God is holding out on you. He's created a rule for you that if you follow it, you're not going to be able to live life as fully as you want to live. There's more for you. And if you actually do this, right, God, the, secret's, the secret is you'll be more like God this way. Your eyes will be open. You'll be like God. This, this is a good thing, right? And you're like, well, yeah, I guess that is kind of a good thing, right? Yeah, it's totally a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God can't be trusted. That's where it starts. I'm going I'm to have you doubt God's words and God's ways. That's what we'll start with. The temptation was not at first, hey, be mad at your spouse or, you know, have, you know, have tension in your relationship or something like that. The temptation was first, did God really say that thing to you? Are you sure he did? And that has been the temptation ever since. When our marriage isn't going as we thought it would and we want to pursue other means of fulfillment in hopes of alleviating how we feel, we trust God and what he said our marriage is and who we are in it and how we function within it. When uh, we read that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and we see other faith systems and we see nice people who aren't Christians, and we wonder if Jesus' words are really true. Is he the way, the truth, and the life? When there are so many people who don't know him, who seem rather kind and loving and gentle, what, what about that? How sure can I be that he's the way when I know other nice people who don't believe that. Same kind of thing. Can God be trusted? Can, can he be trusted? When those God kids, this one's for you, when those God has a place, it's for all of us, uh, has placed an authority over us, parents, elders, governors, however, and they ask things of us that don't contradict a command in scripture. It's hard for us as kids to do that. Who are we trusting? All right, and you see kind of the rebellion of your child, you know, keep up. I say this as one of my kids, even right now. I'm like, hey, you've gotten a little more defiant. You've gotten a little more defiant, a little less confident that I know what I'm talking about, uh, a little less confident that I know what's best, which is like, what? No, I haven't. I'm like, well, there you go. Uh, there's no new sin, just new expressions of the same sins, the heart issues the same. There's something in us that doesn't 
listen to what God says. Let's listen to Jesus' half-brother James say it like this. Each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, the temptation... To believe other voices other than God is always there. It's there for the unbeliever. It's there for the believer. Right? Do I actually think what God has said is true? Do I actually think that God's ways are right? When we read last week about how God wired us to be together, to serve together, do we actually think that's true? Think about the life of the church. There are plenty of people in the life of the church who just think of the church as secondary. Like, well, I can follow God without the church. I'm like, man, ask the apostles that question. I don't think that they thought you could. Like, they're like, well, they don't ever tell us to. I'm like, they kind of assumed that you, they, so, like, they thought you would. The epistles are to churches or to people leading churches. There's no kind of word out there of like, every, everything in the epistles is about people who belong to churches. And yet some people just go, well, you know, I just don't really think you need the church. They seriously do that. I, I know people who just for years just stop going to church because they feel like they can just kind of serve God on their own, doing whatever they want. I'm like, that's a lie. That's a total lie that you grabbed onto because you've assumed that walking with God is about just you walking with God, not us walking with God. You've assumed that we don't need each other. Like, like that, that's a big problem. That's a big problem. And what are we doing? We don't believe that being together matters, right? Again, it's just the erosion of confidence in God, what he said, what he's spoken, how it works. And yet still, and yet still, and this is the thing about God that we will see throughout Scripture, right? If you're in our reading plan right now and you're in the prophets, you see it, is that even when there's judgment, there's hope. Even, like God is always pursuing his people. Even when they mess up, he still pursues them. Even when they're wrong, he still pursues them. And you see this as God returns. Returns, I'm going to put in air quotes, like he didn't know what was going on. It's the same thing like Jesus, you know, after his resurrection, is walking with these guys who don't know it's Jesus. And like, tell me more about what you're, you know, this guy you've you're, you heard about. They're like, are you crazy? Do you not know who Jesus is? This guy is amazing. I'm going to tell, and he's like, oh, yeah, 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 okay, cool. Right? And so like, all that stuff. So he's kind of kind of walking along and he's like, man, where are you from? How did you not know about this the whole while? Of course, he's, he's in on it because he is it. And we see this thing that happens when sin, which is a total betrayal of all that God has created as good. Right? Uh, there's one author who calls it the vandalism of Shalom. The vandalism of shalom, right? That there's a state, a world that God has created that is perfect. And sin is the vandalization of that perfection. Our sin exposed makes us hide. Look at what happens in 8 through 13. God exposes the sin. He brings out this kind of sort of blame-shifting confession and they hide. So verse 8. And they heard the sound... Of the Lord God walking in the garden, likely like the sound of wind and the cool of the day. And, his, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. They ate the fruit. 
Their eyes are opened and they hide from God, their creator. I mean, dogs do this too, don't they? Right? Like, it's like, like, like animals know when they do something wrong, I'm supposed to do that. And what do they do? They hide. I've said this to my kids for a very long time. Our sin makes us hide. Our sin makes us hide because we don't want to be found out, even by God. And that's what's hilarious is because he already knows. The environment of Genesis 1 and 2 has already been flipped. What was once a life unashamed and in fellowship with God is now a life full of shame and hiding from God. You might even feel in a moment like this, a Sunday morning where the lights are on and everything's good. Like you might be hiding today. You might be going, I don't want this part of me to be found. I don't want this part of my life, this part of my affections, this part of how I spent last night. I don't want that to be known. And so we hide. We put on a happy face. We show up and, hey, brother, hey, sister, all the way through. We get on out and we're like, whoo, I am glad no one found out anything. That feeling exists in Christians and non-Christians alike. We hide our sins. Even when Christ has forgiven us of all of our sins, they're still like, we're like, well, I don't know. Does he know about that one? Does he know about that one? We have to keep remembering all are covered. All are covered. And yet still sin makes us hide. The Lord calls out to his creation. He doesn't just leave it alone. He asks those questions. Well, who said you were naked? And then we have you know, those wonderful deceptions. Oh, she did it. He did it. Right? Like they, they just start to blame shift. And there's just something in us that loves to blame shift. Why? Because that's a part of hiding. There's this trying to hide and kind of run from God with physical separation, which you can't do. And then there's just trying to hide your own sin by making it look like it was somebody else's fault. You go, well, they made me do it. They made me do it. This is one of the hardest things. It doesn't matter if you're a child. It doesn't matter if you're an adult. Making someone else look bad feels good for a second. Like we got away with something. And yet we bring it to an omniscient God. And we think we're getting away with something. We really do. We think we did it. We're like, ha, 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 showed him. No, it didn't. It just showed us how ridiculous we are. That's all it did. So sin makes us hide. And God finds us. He finds us. He doesn't go, well, I'm going to wait. I'm just going to stay here, right? Be mad. Wait for them to come tell me something's wrong. No, he comes and finds us. <sighs> but then we get to the consequences. The consequences of not trusting God. Our sin. It's Separation. And we have three, the three actors are spoken to. The serpent, the woman Eve, and Adam. They're all spoken to. And we're going to go uh, through these uh, briefly as we just look at how God spoke. To the serpent. 
being a part of this rebellion, the serpent is now cursed over all other animals. And there's this enmity, or you could use the word hostility, if you wanted to, that exists now between the offspring of the serpent and Eve. Now, this sounds rather, uh, you could just say bizarre, right? Like, so there's hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of Eve. Cool, got it, onward. Like, like you go, what, what, what in the world is that? What it means is this, that there's a cosmic battle, good versus evil, kingdom of light and kingdom of darkness, and it has been happening since this. And what is crazy is that even as the New Testament, we read about ourselves, it says that we all were a part of the kingdom of darkness. Don't like to feel like I was on the, the bad guys team. That's not a rather comforting feeling. I don't, want to, I don't want to know that. I'm a globetrotter, not a general. I think they play the Washington Generals. I think that's who it is. Yeah. I'm not on the losing team. I'm only on the winning team. But we have to realize that because of our separation from God that now exists because of our sin, is that we're actually part of the wrong train. And yet God in his grace will move us into the kingdom of light. So the first thing we see is that there is this battle going on. That battle rages even today. The battle's not from back there. I was interacting with somebody even this week about, um, we, we come from totally different worldviews. We're just in an email exchange, never met the person. Uh, in this email exchange about uh, the use of religion and the secularization of the world and how fewer and fewer people would identify themselves with any one religious system, but many would identify themselves as spiritual Right? It's just the same thing over and over again. Right? It's a cosmic battle for the souls of men, women, and children, and it gets new window dressing every few generations. It's all it gets to deceive and keep us separated from our creator. That's all it gets. It's just a constant happening. So there is now this enmity, there's this hostility that exists, and it wages on. We talk about it in the New Testament realm of spiritual warfare. That's always there. When the Apostle Paul says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, you know, what you see here. You're not my enemy, which is one of the things we always have to say to one another. But there's something else going on. And it's a, it's a battle for the, the worship and glory of a risen Lord Jesus it's his fame throughout all the world. That's the battle. The battle's not just me getting along with my friends. The battle's God getting the glory for everything. So there's this battle that is ongoing, and then you have Genesis 3.16. Now, church history very early on grabs onto Genesis 3.16. I'm sorry, not 3.16, uh, 3.15. We see this... Uh, you will hurt his you know, heel, but he is going to strike your head. The idea to the serpent, because the serpent is now lowered, there's this statement about enmity that you will cause a little bruise on his heel, but he is going to strike your head. Now, early church authors started to find this and go, I might see in this what Jesus does over Satan, that it seems like there might be a, a, a brief bruising but ultimately, there's victory for the seed of 
the woman. So early church history would then find this statement and go, Jesus did that. That at the cross, the hostility that was there was, was conquered or assured. You could say it that way. They call it a proto-euangelion, like this kind of seed of the gospel, right? Kind of this beginning idea that there is going to be victory of good over evil, of God's ways over Satan's ways, that that is going to happen. And as people were, you know, studying and learning, they were finding very early, they'd look at this. Not everybody does, but they'd look at this and go, Jesus is that offspring. Yes, there is a bruising of the heel, but there is a bruising of the head as well. There will be a battle, but victory will come from the seed of the woman. And it's interesting because in the Gospels, right, they have genealogies and linking even Jesus all the way back. Coming into this world, linking Jesus all the way back because he's the seed. And they see him as that. So we see this first statement there. Now we have this statement that is written to Eve, the woman, of a life of pain and strife. So the first cursing to the serpent, there's hostility or enmity. In this, now we see strife. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Which is it's bizarre wording. But what we'll see, and we'll go to the easy one first and the harder one second, because that makes me feel better. But what was supposed to be a glorious moment, remember the Genesis 1 statement. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That this was stated as a blessing. And now, that same idea from Genesis chapter 1 is going to be painful work. Painful. Continuing to be fruitful and multiply now carries with it struggles. Pain, even in the most meaningful of moments, is now part of the human experience. Many of you have lived that. You've lived it. Some in the room and some who might be watching online have experienced not just that, but the loss of children, miscarriage of children. And it's interesting because that taps into something in the human experience that all of us will cry out and say, This isn't right. This isn't right. And you can go right back to Genesis 3 and go, it's not right. It's a part of this world. And this is not the way God intended it. And so what was once a blessing to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth is now, though still a blessing, kids are awesome, is now filled with pain and anxiety, and there are some who, when they get pregnant, are nervous for nine months. I have friends who have never carried a child to term. Never. They've lost every single one. 
Pregnancy was never exciting. It was never hopeful. It was like, okay, you got to go see the doctors all the time. So there's pain even in those moments. It's an undoing of the world that was created in Genesis 1 and 2. What was, what was joyful and easy is now hard. And there's another one we see there in that second part. Your desire shall be contrary for your husband and he shall rule over you. It's not just, it's this relational strife that exists because we don't trust God. So you have different translations. For example, the ESV, which we read, says your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Uh, the Net Bible would read it as you will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. The NASB reads it as yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. These all have little different nuanced meanings, right? Uh, but one thing becomes clear in this is that there is not relational harmony but relational strife. What was cooperatively bringing God's image throughout all the world is now somebody wanting to control another and the other one saying, no way, I'm in charge. Commentator Alan Ross would put it like this. He says, the idea of the verse would be that because the woman prompted the man to sin in giving him something to eat, that is taking the lead rather than maintaining a partnership, the man would have dominion over her. But further, he would say it like this. The story portrays a characteristic of human nature that woman at her worst would be a nemesis to man and man at his worst would dominate the woman. That you now get the worst of us. You get the worst of us. And that makes a lot of sense. You're going to want to function in a way not keeping with partnership. Husband, you're going to want to function in a way not keeping with, heart, with, with partnership. You're both going to be at each other. You're both going to be at each other. Now, what we'll see, this is more next week, but you can't, you can't not go there when you're speaking about the fall, is though there's, there's the world God created there's our vandalism of that world through our sin. You then see in the work of Jesus the, the redoing and even bettering of the world that was created. But we're not all the way there yet, right? Because like, like ancient church guys would say it like this, that the original created order was you were um, able not to sin, and then the fallen world was where you're not able not to sin, and then in the created world, the new heaven and the new earth, is, uh, you're going to be not able to sin. Right? So we see a difference in what was coming because clearly in this original world, you were able not to sin, but you still did. Now in this world that we're in, we have an inability to not sin. That separation, I'm, I'm going to do it my way, and I'm going to choose my own route. That separation just shows it's not just things I do, but it's a way of being in this world. Romans chapter 6 talks about sin that way. Sin not just as an action, but sin as a way of life. Sin as a ruling power. And so we have enmity to the serpent. We have strife. And even the most beautiful moments, pain and strife. And then we speak to Adam in 17 and 18. And what do we see but painful toil in work? 
No longer is there going to be harmony. I mean, you ever see the original depictions of the Garden of Eden, and it's, you know, two people. Even artists, like, will cover them with bushes and stuff like that. But, like, two people, and birds are on them, and they're having conversations with deer, and, like, everything's fine. Uh, The birds aren't going to the restroom on Adam and Eve because, like, we're in this perfect world. And so everything's great, and it's all harmonious, and, you know, it's like, it's, you know, like, we're just talking, and there's Bambi over there, and it's beautiful. Right? All these ways the world operated... And you're given this blessing to, uh, to subdue the earth, take it, right, which is this constant working in this perfect world, which is good. It's great. I love this idea that work existed in the garden. Work is not a consequence of the fault. Hard, hard, like not getting along with the ground work is. But work was a part of how God created us. He created us to work. We don't just sit around. And so we see that there's not harmony in our relationships and there's not harmony in our task to rule the world and subdue it, that we do it wrong. No longer is this a world of joyful peace to engage, but uh, we have this exhausting, grueling work. And then, what does he say? We die. From the dust you were created and to the dust you will return. Now, in one sense, it is incredibly gracious of God not to immediately wipe them out. Right? That is, that is a statement of God's patience and grace with his creation. That he waits. That he waits. But death is coming as a result of sin. Which he said would happen, right? He said it would happen. It doesn't matter what kind of longevity treatments we have. It doesn't matter what supplements we take. It doesn't matter how often we exercise. Unless you're about three people in the Bible, you're dying. That's it. That's it. You're dying. And so even that last statement, you're going back to where you came from, was to the dust. These three pronouncements give us a fuller understanding of why life is the way life is. I could stop there, but I want to I go to this last portion because it's an important aspect of God's character. So we're going to look at the last paragraph, uh, 320 through 24. The man called his wife's name Eve, that's where her name comes, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made Adam made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore let the Lord God set him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man to the east of the garden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now I want to go to the first first statement here. What do we see but God's provision? He made, in verse 21, garments of skins and clothed them. Now you probably already see this or you've heard this before, but there's this realization even, even then. I mean, where did the animal skins come from? 
Do you think there was just a closet of them? Do you think that, that God just kind of created animal skins like without animal in them? And where do animal skins come from? They come from previously living animals. And what does God do? Something dies and is used to cover the shame of the sinner. This is the crazy thing about God is his ways don't change. That God is even, he's even, in a sense, removing their shame and their embarrassment, but it doesn't happen without the death of something. But in Christ, in the death of Christ, all sin and shame is removed. For all who believe. For all who believe. Though their life would be difficult and toil and strife would exist all their days, we see in Christ the undoing of these, a pronouncement, a promise of what will be a total reversal of everything we screwed up. Listen to this, these two verses from Romans 5, which Matt also read a portion of Romans 5 today, but we read this. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Through Jesus, we can be made right. And what was undone in Genesis 3 is being put back together by the creator of the world of Genesis 1 and 2. He puts it back in order. And it starts with the relationship that we have with him. That as our relationship with him is brought back together, our relationship with one another now changes too. That'll be next week, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. That we have been brought near to God and near to one another. That God fixes both through Christ. He fixes the hostility we have, he has toward us and the tension that we have with one another. Jesus has changed the outcome for all who have faith. But that nagging issue of reentry still seems to show up. Because we forget. We forget what God has done for us. We forget how he has made us. We forget so often the right relationship that we've been brought into. And all of a sudden, when it comes to you and me, you bring the problems to the table I don't. And what we are able to do in Christ, what we are able to do in Christ, even though we recognize this world is not the way that it should be, is we remember. And this is the hard part because there's a part of ownership in it. I am the reason life together is difficult. Me. In Christ, I can say that. And in Christ, you can say that. I'm the reason it's hard. I have forgotten his love for me. 
I've forgotten the grace that I need to extend. I've forgotten the grace that I have been given. Our church was perfect until you showed up. It was great. Then you came. And you ruined it. For all of us. And then when I came, I ruined it for you. I made it all worse. Why, despite our best efforts, do we sometimes feel these things? It's because we've forgotten what God has done for us and we're living as if Jesus hasn't changed our hearts. There are still things that show up. Illness, death, pain, conflict, strife, harm, hurt. Those things still show up. And understanding the condition of this world help us to have a sober reality when we look around. I was talking to my uh, cousin just a couple of weeks ago, I think, and he, he said this. It, it just stuck with me. He goes, we all, he's like, I'm just getting more and more settled into the fact that every church is imperfect. The only problem is we all want our version of imperfect. I want it imperfect in the ways that I like. Because I'm used to me. I know what I'm bad at. So guess what? Like when it's time for my performance eval, I'm just going to talk about the things I'm good at. Not the things I'm bad at. Right? Let's just try and hide it. Or I'll set it up and only talk about the things everyone knows I already struggle with. Like, oh, well, we knew that about you coming in, Hans. Oh, perfect, good. Okay, I'm good then. Recognizing that, that, that the conflicts that exist within us are a part of the world, but we can't blame the world. We have to look here because that's the work that Jesus first did. It doesn't mean that sin doesn't happen to us. <clears throat> it doesn't mean that we aren't sinned against. It doesn't mean that there aren't wounds and things that we struggle with because of sin. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle to trust one another. But when we look to the cross of Christ, what are we able to do but to see what he's done for us? And the more our gaze is put to him, the less we have to bring to the gripes we bring against one another. And when you really mean it, and we've talked about this before, confessing your sin and recognizing that you are a big part of the problem to every relational issue that exists. Confessing our sin is not a tactic to try and get them to do the same thing. The Christian doesn't go, here are all the ways that I've screwed up. Now, let me hear your ways. And I wait for you to say the thing that I really wanted to tell you about anyways. Yeah, 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 you said, you said you're sometimes a, a little rude. I, I've been thinking that too. I'm really glad that you shared that. Because in that moment, what happens? We have somehow twisted even confession to make it about what we can get out of it, which is to make you feel worse. Rather than recognizing that Christ has forgiven us, and when he's forgiven us much, and what is he illustrated as in his gospel? We forgive. We love. We grant grace. We understand. We've been there. You're the problem. I'm the problem. My affections, when not looking at Jesus, are misaligned. 
As we sang already today, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I don't love the Lord, I love myself. I love my ways. I love things happening in the way that I want them to happen. Why? Because I haven't trusted that what God has said is true. And though, even for me, my salvation secured in Christ, I still, day to day, have sometimes varying levels of confidence that his ways are best. I can pay lip service to it, and if you gave me a quiz, I could pass it. But in how I interact, I still will doubt his ways are best. The way of thinking that my way is best, my needs are best, God can't be trusted, that way of thinking needs to be brought before the Lord, repented of, and to receive his forgiveness. No more hiding. The receiving of his grace And when we do this, we can own our problems. When you're annoyed in church or in community group that things haven't gone your way, you could actually say, I haven't helped here. I haven't helped here. I've actually, all I've done is, 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 is contributed to the problem. I focus merely on what I want and have neglected you. It's amazing the things that change when we actually operate in the way that God has asked us to operate Versus operating the way that we want to, which is, can you please make this about me? When you're annoyed that your spouse is not as attentive to your needs as you'd like, you can recognize that even in that, we're making marriage about us and not the Lord. When you're in your group, and you think it would be great if your group members would just share more. They'd be more honest. They'd be more open. How have you contributed to the, how have you contributed to the culture of non-sharing? And you actually look, you go, you know what? Actually, I kind of try to take you down every time you confess something. I'm not gracious with you, am I? So, of course, you're afraid to share. But I'm going to try and fix your problem. Right? And who wants to always try and be fixed? Because when I look, my gaze is to the Lord, I go, he's fixed it. He's fixed it. And it requires the constant attention because we don't realize how deeply the fall affects everything that we do. How many jobs exist today because sin exists in this world? Basically, all of them. All of them. If I, I asked my students this recently. I said, hey, if you woke up tomorrow and sin were gone, how would you know? And they were giving these answers like, oh, I just, I'd be happier. You know, I think I'd be happier. I'd feel peace. And then one student chimes up and she's like, I live with uh, single homeless pregnant women with my husband. And um, I think that I would begin to experience women waking up and knocking on our door and telling us how they've never felt more free. I think that's, that's what it would be. One person said, uh, the hospitals would be closed. They'd be closed. Everyone would be at the unemployment line but have everything that they need because unemployment's, in that regard, a good thing. Sin makes us high, but grace frees us and we can look to the world it is. The world isn't like it should be. 
Relationships aren't like they should be. Not even our churches are like they should be. But Jesus has come. And he has changed the way we work. And he has undone the separation. Deposited the spirit within us. Which is a down payment guaranteeing the inheritance of the world where we are unable to sin. And sin is unable to reside. And when we keep that front and center in our lives and in our church and in our group and our marriages and our conversations, what kind of church does Genesis become? Think about it. What kind of church do we become? It sounds more like at that moment the woman who was told by Jesus all the things that was wrong with her and she ran and told her town and she said, come listen to this guy. He knows everything about me. And there was no embarrassment in her voice. He knows everything about me. And what's insinuated there? And he doesn't hate me for it. He doesn't hate me for it. And he didn't condemn me for it. You need to talk to him. And when we can remember that, what can we do? We can have, people can confess whatever. And we can go, God's grace is big enough for that. And it gives us the language to speak to people when they're struggling to say, I was talking to recently with one of my kids who was upset over uh, we lost some stuff and it's important stuff for how we live our lives. We lost it. And it was like, how come God couldn't have not made it get lost or taken? Because it might have gotten taken. Because that's a hard one. That's a hard one. We have to remember that we live in a world where this kind of stuff hurts. It doesn't work right. It doesn't work right. It's gone and now we might have to replace it. And if we replace it, there's a cost to that. That's a part of life. But when we say that's a part of life, it's not a part of life as it should be. It's a part of life as it is. As it should be, that never happens. And we should be the most hope-filled, joyful, heavenly, heavenward-looking people in the world. Because we have been transformed by his grace.